you hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. You want to retire in a place that's LGBTQ friendly, but most LGBTQ friendly cities and towns in the U.S. are ridiculously expensive. Queer people pay a high price for inclusion and security, don't we? So what can we do? Well, Bill asked in the Queer Money Facebook group for information on retiring abroad in an LGBTQ-friendly city or town, and Mike and Brent, the digital nomads of the Mike and Brent Are Going Places blog, agreed to come on episode 264 of the Queer Money podcast to share living and working abroad as a same-sex couple to stretch their dollars, retirement, and otherwise further. Mike and Brent give great insight on both living and working abroad to save money and what to know and how to prepare to possibly retire abroad as queer people. Mike and Brent are really inspiring with how they're living their best lives as a same-sex couple, even in parts of the world that many of us have been conditioned to believe are scary and not for us. We love sharing stories of LGBTQ folks succeeding in myriad ways, and Mike and Brent offer a new perspective on how queer people can live and retire. Remember, we make the Queer Money podcast for you, so please post your money questions in the Queer Money Facebook group, just like Bill did, and we may answer your question in an upcoming episode. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money. This podcast is sponsored by Capital One. Capital One is redesigning the banking experience by offering simple, straightforward, and seamless ways for you to bank from almost anywhere. So banking fits into your life, not the other way around. Join our movement to build a community of happier, healthier, and wealthier gay men by getting your free copy of The Five Building Blocks of a Happy Gay Life at debtfreeguys.com forward slash happy. So welcome, Mike and Brent, to the show. We're excited to have you finally. Hi, John and David. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you. We're very excited. Wonderful. We're excited to have you. So uh, I think a good place to start this conversation is an article that you wrote back in uh, the end of 2018 titled, Americans Say They Want the Simple, Authentic Life, But America Makes That Impossible, Almost Impossible. And so you, you sort of challenge some of the cliches, the American cliches, like Americans appreciate the simple, authentic life of community and personal satisfaction, and the other cliche that the car is a physical embodiment of freedom. Um, <laughs> do you still disagree with these cliches? And if so, why? Well, it's funny. You know, I think I sort of thought about America in a certain way when I was living in America. And then when you leave America, you see it with completely different eyes. And if anything, I think... The three and a half years that we've been traveling, I feel sort of more judgmental about the consumeristic lifestyle in America and the auto-based lifestyle. There are so many obstacles, it seems to me, in the way of personal satisfaction and personal happiness. So many, you know, so many things telling you to be unhappy or making you unhappy, the cost of everything, having to drive everywhere, just everything being so materialistic, the pursuit of things. And it's sort of inherent in that is always sort of being unhappy with the status quo. So you're always striving for more, which on one hand is a good thing about, about of America, about America. But on the other hand, I think makes everybody depressed and anxious and, and miserable. Mm-hmm. In terms of the, the auto part of it, I mean, one of the things we discovered in Seattle, you had to have a car. It was simply impossible to get around. So, you know, it literally was freedom because public transportation is so bad. But when you live in many other parts of the world, like Europe, having a car actually is what ties you down. You've got a car payment, you've got the insurance, you've got the maintenance, so you're putting all the money into it. And then you have this train system or inexpensive airfares or amazing buses that will take you all over the country to different places where you then don't have to worry about parking the car or paying for the parking. And instead you can, you know, get around on a bike or get around you know, using other local buses. And, and it, it feels to us like it opens up the world so much more than Americans think cars do. And every city in the world, except for in America, is based around people. In America, cities are based around cars. It's all about the automobile, but that's not true in most of the rest of the world. And therefore, the cities are so much more pleasant places to be. You know, the, the parks are the focus and, you know, you walk everywhere and, and you interact with human beings. It's just a more pleasant way to live. Other people? That sounds a little scary. <laughs> what a concept, <laughs> I know. I will say, I think I found this very interesting, Your con- the comment that you made, which I think is a very strong feeling, especially for gay men, for gay men talking here. I think we can probably, we might agree on this. Your comment about, the dissatisfaction until you have the thing and then there's 
once you have the thing, there's the next thing to be dissatisfied with so that yeah. you have to get the next thing. Yeah. And unfortunately, I think for I think for gay guys, there is also in our community an emphasis on being young and being a certain kind of fit and maybe being a certain skin color. And when you travel the world, it feels to me, I mean, I'm sort of in the high. This is still my first three and a half years of nomading. So I'm looking on the bright side and I'm maybe romanticizing things a bit, but it feels like people have a more realistic view of the way people look and a, a greater appreciation for age, for example, or, you know, for aging. And I don't know, it just, the rest of the world seems so much healthier. Like, again, again, I'm looking at this through rose-colored glasses because this is all very new and romantic, relatively speaking for me. But at the same time, it just feels like Americans are really, they're simultaneously, they're very uptight about things, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. Well, and I think, you know, this, this perpetual pursuit of more and more things is, is part of, you know, what the inspiration of this particular episode is, is, you know, Bill in the Queer Money Facebook group asked, you know, he wants to move abroad, uh, so he can stretch his retirement dollars further, but he's very adamant about only going to an LGBTQ friendly city or town, whereas most LGBTQ friendly cities or towns in the United States are so expensive, um, most people can't afford to retire there. So what's your general advice for LGBTQ folks who want to retire in a queer friendly city or town abroad? Any start off suggestions? Well, that is a very, very, very complicated question because I think you, you can sort of redefine what LGBTQ friendly is. I think in a lot of places, there are a lot of places that maybe they may seem like homophobic countries, but the big cities are not necessarily as intolerant as you would think. We have found that in a lot of places. And I think in most places in the world, if you are a, are a, an American, you're going to be, you're going to be perceived as being wealthier. So people are going to treat you more tolerant. They may not treat you the, the way they would treat a local gay person. So you're going to be put in a different category. Plus, I think, you know, you live in different cultures and you sort of go with the flow and you sort of, for me, the whole process of travel, you sort of meet people halfway and people meet you halfway, more than halfway, usually, if they perceive you as a rich American. And what seems alien and foreign before you visit a place, once you live there and you live and breathe the culture, it's like, oh, I get it. I know how to act here. And uh, some gay people may be like, no, I don't make any compromises at all. That doesn't work for me. But you might also say, oh, you get the beauty of living in southern Italy, which is culturally somewhat conservative, but the food is fantastic. And the culture is beautiful in its own way. And unlike northern Italy, which is more gay tolerant, it's going to be more religiously conservative. But it, that may be something you want to consider, you know, that's all I'm saying. I would add to that, this sort of speaks to something I think we suffered from when we left America, and I think a lot of Americans do, which is kind of a, a generalized fear of the rest of the world, that, that it's going to be scary out there. And I understand for us LGBTQ folks that, you know, there are, are extra reasons to be scared. But, you know, we've lived in some pretty intolerant, you know, at least from the outside countries like Bulgaria and Georgia, and we've gone there and we found we have very few problems. And, and just in general, in terms of the rest of the world being scary in that way, you get out there and you discover, oh, it's really not that big a deal. And I think it's the same with the, the, the queer friendly part. And I would add to that something sort of Brent got close to saying is we've coined a term called the weird foreigner rule. <laughs> and that is that when you are an American, you know, or if you're Canadian or whatever, living in another country, you're already viewed as kind of a strange unicorn creature. And the local mores really don't apply to you. I mean, as long as you're not running around, you know, in Tbilisi, Georgia, making out with your husband in the park, nobody's really going to care that you're gay. Plus, it is true these days, you know, I'm, I'm older, I'm in my 50s. And it is strange to me, pretty much the world over, there is a gay community everywhere, a young gay community. And because of social media, and because of mass media, because they're watching, you know, whatever's on HBO plus, whatever, they don't feel the sense of shame about being gay that I felt when I was that age, even well into my 20s and maybe into my 30s. They don't, a lot of them don't feel that even in conservative countries. They're not necessarily absorbing the cultural mores about homosexuality. So you've got, even in these conservative countries, you've got a young sort of gay population that has some sort of presence. And I think in most of these places, you know, when we were in, Michael mentioned the Republic of Georgia, when we, we lived in there for three months last year. And on one hand, it is very culturally conservative and it's very homophobic. The government is very homophobic. And it felt to me like 
talking to some of our gay friends there, some of the local friends that we made, they would say things, it felt a little bit like what my friends would say in the 1980s, you know, like they would, they would sort of say, well, you know, we got to move slowly. Don't, don't press too hard. And I would think, well, we do need to press too hard. But at the same time, I'm thinking they are so much more informed about gay culture. And I think the progress is going to be so much more rapid because of America and because of Western Europe being so pro-gay. I think that the progress in these other countries, it's going to be accelerated. And so I think in five or 10 years, I think the Republic of Georgia, much of Eastern Europe, these people are going to be in their 30s by then. They're going to be, able, they're going to be movers and shakers. And all of their friends know that they're gay. And, and so it feels like the world is, is on the verge, just like America didn't change and it didn't change and it didn't change. And then in 2009, you know, it changed all of a sudden. And then in 2014, we had same-sex marriage. It feels like that's going to happen around the world. I mean, obviously, you know, Eastern Europe will happen before the Arab world and the African world maybe, and it won't all happen at the same time. But I think like dominoes, all these countries are going to fall in the decades ahead. I would jump in and I would say that for people who are looking to retire now, there are, are definitely options. And if you start with Europe, you're not going to stretch your dollar as far in Europe. But in places like Spain and Portugal, um, where there are large expat communities and there are you know, some pretty significant gay presences, I think especially in Portugal, you are going to find you know, smaller towns that are definitely more affordable. And then if you switch down here to Mexico, there are huge gay presences in, in some of these towns. We're in Puerto Vallarta at the moment. And you know, Puerto Vallarta is, you know, about almost as gay as San Francisco, it feels like sometimes. So you can come down here and plug into, you know, a, a very vibrant gay community. It's going to be less of a bargain than, you know, somewhere a little further out. And there are other like Oaxaca is full of, of uh, retired Americans. I don't know specifically how gay it would be, but I'm sure that there are, are gay people there. We know we do know one expat fellow uh, who lives uh, by a lake called Lake Chapala. And, you know, he's a gay fellow and, and he's living down here quite happily. There are also, you know, there are places in Southeast Asia that are extremely affordable. You know, you could consider Thailand or Vietnam. And, and they are surprisingly pro-gay in a lot of ways. Again, it really depends. You'd have to visit and get a feel and see how comfortable. But there are a lot of stereotypes you have about places before you visit. And then you go there and it's like, oh, okay, this isn't what I thought. Yeah. I will add... That that aha moment about that happened for John and I a couple of, well, about four weeks ago, we drove drove from Las Vegas to Salt Lake City. And for years, right, we've heard, oh, Utah, you don't ever want to go there. That's the worst place <laughs> in the world. That's a flyover state. All the gays yep. don't ever go there. Honestly, I think that that is the gayest place in the world yep. right now. <laughs> yep. Because we, dri we drive down streets and it's like everything third or fourth house has a rainbow flag or a trans flag hanging in it. We're like, just, just in the city, it's just incredibly, amazingly gay-friendly. Restaurants that are not gay restaurants have rainbow flags hanging up on, in the, on their wall or in the, on the door or something like that because they understand they want people to know that this is a safe place, right? That this is comfortable. You're going to find it. It's going to be there. And I think that's kind of what you're saying is that in some of these countries that many yep. people think are the worst place in the world, you don't ever want to go there. You're going to find your enclave. You're going to find these yeah. groups of people. And it is, it's the young people. It really is. And at some point, I'm old enough now that being gay went from being literally the most uncool thing you could be <laughs> to being kind of cool among people, you know, under 30, 25 and under, and especially 20 and under, you know, it's, it's kind of cool now to be gay. And, and I, that's not just true in the United States. That's true of young people everywhere. That ethic, you know, America has sort of broadcast that to the world and it's true everywhere. Young people do not want to be perceived as racist and they don't want to be perceived as homophobic or transphobic or anything. And that is, changing the world more quickly than I think any of us really know. Yeah, And I think for, for, for people, for gay people who are looking to retire abroad, there's a balancing act. Life is always choices. You know, you can yeah. choose the more expensive place in France that you know is going to be super gay friendly, or you can choose a less expensive place that is going to stretch your dollar farther that maybe isn't quite as gay friendly. You're not going to find everything, you're rarely going to find everything you want in, in one spot. And we're all adults and those are decisions, you know, that we have to make. You have to choose which is more important to you. I mean, do you want the really active nightlife? Because here in Puerto Vallarta, 
there's an incredibly active gay nightlife. If that's important to you, then you, you, know, you need to make that a priority. But if you just want to eat out in great restaurants, you know, and have maybe a different kind of community, there are lots of options there too. Nice. Uh, that's a great segue. So part of Bill's question is he's curious about, you know, stretching his dollars further. Um, and I know that you're, you're not expats. You're, you're, you're slow traveling around the world. You're, you're digital nomads. But in an October 2019 article, you wrote that you're traveling the world, seeing amazing things and having incredible experiences for slightly more than half of what you spent <laughs> maintaining a modest home in Seattle. Um, is that still true? <laughs> yeah. If anything, it's more true. I mean, so the numbers, specific numbers, we when we left Seattle, we're, we're writers, and we've chosen to not be rich, to do what we love, and we've never really been rich. And we lived, when we lived in Seattle, this would have been 2016, we were making together about $80,000, $85,000 a year, and we lived on that very, very tightly. Then we left to travel the world. The first year, we spent $52,000. The second year, we spent 43000 and I haven't done the numbers for this year. And... You, it's, you were really, it's comparing apples and oranges because when we're traveling the world, first of all, we spend about half the time, you know, we spend about two months a year on a cruise ship. We spend about half the time in Western Europe or some other sort of expensive country. And then we spend about half. So by only spending, and we don't particularly live like monks. I mean, we eat out far more because the cost of living is so much cheaper. The only way I could conceive of traveling was being on vacation. And so when we were planning all of this, I was thinking, oh gosh, I hope we can keep our cost of living exactly what is it, what it is in Seattle. And I was thinking of, you know, when you're on vacation, you know, you spend a lot of money. The reality is when you get outside of the United States and Western Europe, the world, the cost of living is much, much, much cheaper. And when you live long term, if you spend six months of your year in a place like Eastern Europe, where our rent was 300 euros of, you know, $325, $350 a month, you can then spend more money in other countries. You can live in Switzerland. But yeah, it's night and day. I was shocked by by that. And then I guess the other part of the coin is Seattle and America has become so much more expensive. Even since we left, we've gone back to visit and we go out to dinner and, you know, we'll go out with, with friends here in Mexico even. And we'll all, you know, six of us, we'll all eat. We'll all have entrees and hors d'oeuvres and appetizers and and we'll have drinks and dessert and it'll be $50 for six of us. And then I'll go back to Seattle and we'll go out to dinner with friends and it'll be six of us and the bill will be like $350. And I'm like, <laughs> I mean, after living, you know, so long in these countries, I think, well, that's what dinner should cost. To eat out with six friends, it should cost $50. So I have like sticker shock. I'm thinking, oh my God, right. that's, that's ridiculously overpriced. And yet we used to pay that regularly when we lived there. Yeah, we lived over in Spain for three months, the end of uh, 2020 into 2020. And um, we were shocked when we came back about we could go out for a single night and spend 10 euro, 15 euro. I mean, they were yep. just having a couple tapas, having a couple glasses of wine, we weren't, you know, partying or anything. When we came yep. back to the United States, we just get one bottle of wine and it costs three times that much. <laughs> right. And the ethic in Seattle now is, you know, you tip 20 to 25%. And tipping culture is completely different. You know, there's usually no, no, taxes in a lot of other countries. So it's like, we've been, I've been shocked by how much further our dollar goes. And then we also have the additional advantage of, you know, if our careers aren't going so great, you know, we can choose to, to gravitate to cheaper countries, you know, or, you know, if things are going well, then we can go to more expensive countries. And, you know, living in America, we didn't have that option. Nice. And so I know that you, you guys aren't personal finance nerds like we are, but if, if the nomadic world is anything like the personal finance world, we all kind of talk about how we're making our lifestyles work and, and how our budgets are working. With the expats that you have talked with, do you find that they're also saving money even though they're staying more long-term in their destinations? It varies. We have some friends who have American jobs and are therefore making, you know, six plus figures or whatever. And so they just really, they live lavishly and they still are able to put money away. We have other friends who are maybe not so well employed. They don't make as much money or they do. And, but they live frugally. They're doing fire. What does the acronym mean, Michael? What is fire? Early retirement. They're trying to do early Financial retirement. Independence early retirement. There you go. And the point is, you know, they live on fifteen or twenty thousand dollars a year and they're making a hundred thousand, you know, minus taxes, and you can put away, you know, sixty thousand dollars a year, then then therefore you can retire after five years as opposed to after twenty years. We have a number of friends that are doing that. I think everybody is much more relaxed. I mean, if you have an American salary and you're living overseas, 
first of all, I fully acknowledge this is massive American privilege. It's just that's the other thing that's sort of blown me away, blown me away. The privilege that we have as Americans just existing in the world. It's like the world exists for us. Um, so I acknowledge that. But that said, you're going to have an American salary whether you're living in America or not. So if that is the case, choosing this as an option has turned out to be a really good one for ourselves and for a lot of our friends. Nice. And so you, you touched on something that I think is, is important to cover. How do you manage paying taxes, especially as you're still working and you don't have a permanent residence in the U.S., I don't think, but you're traveling the world. How do you manage all that? It's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> That's the whole like show, daily, right? You know, I had a, a, years ago, I had an accountant say to me, oh, you guys should set up a, an S-corp. You know, it's really, really easy. And then we did. And we had an S-corp for many, many years. And every year I would just curse this accountant. And, I, and then I would think back, well, he's an accountant from his point of view. And S-corp is really simple. But I'm not an accountant. So this thing is incredibly difficult. So for me, I mean, I'm just a lay person. But I do find it it is very complicated. We just we have an accountant. We have a, an accountant that um, a new accountant, not the old guy. We have a new accountant <laughs> who handles us as a digital nomad. He specializes in digital nomads. But we're also doing the foreign earned income tax exclusion, which means that if you are out of the country more than 135 days, no, 335 days a year, then you don't pay income taxes up to 85,000 or 125,000. It changes. It varies oh, wow. based on whether we're a couple. So that'll save us a big chunk of money. We're still paying payroll taxes, of course. And since we're self-employed, that's 15% as opposed to the usual 7.5%. But that still saves us a big chunk of money. It's no more, it's less complicated. I mean, people say, gosh, it must be so stressful to travel the world constantly moving to a new place and all of that. And there are certainly stresses that go along with it. But the big picture is, I think our lives financially and in every aspect, are much, much, much less stressful now than owning a house in Seattle and, and all that goes along with that. I think finances were far more complicated when we did that, um, especially since I had a damn S-Corp. But uh, <laughs> even without the S-Corp, life was way more complicated living back in the United States than it is now. You do bring up uh, an interesting point here that it's good to tap into experts that are aligned with the lifestyle you're trying to build. Yes. Yeah. You've picked an accountant that is uh, an expert or is very familiar with digital nomads. If you're going to retire outside the U.S., maybe it's a good idea to, to track down an account before you start the process, track down an accountant who can help you understand what are the benefits and maybe the pros and cons of doing so, so you're well prepared and then you have somebody back home can handle all the paperwork for you. <laughs> and there are so many resources to find that that information. I'm I'm not a big Facebook fan, but the fact of the matter is Facebook is filled with, you know, expat groups and digital nomad groups. Um, you can find a digital nomad group for almost any city that you're living in. And I'm sure you can find one for expats. And literally when we're going to a new city, I will join that. I will introduce myself. And then I can ask any question in the world, including, you know, a tax person or an accountant. I mean, if you're getting started and you don't have an accountant, drop into one of these groups, introduce yourself and say, hey, I'm looking for an accountant who knows about being a digital nomad or being an expat in Portugal. And people are going to, you know, jump over themselves to help you get that information. Well, we also have financial advisors, and you've probably discussed this on your show, whether or not it's worth it to pay somebody a financial advisor fee, the 1%, you know, in order to manage your money. And yeah, there are pros and cons as to whether or not, you know, all the studies that show you do just as well if you just stick your money in an index fund or whatever. But what I have found, our financial advisors have become incredible resources for all kinds of financial questions. So, for example, when we decided to leave the United States, we were debating whether or not to sell our house or keep our house and rent it out when we were gone. We were able to ask them, you know, run through the numbers and they were able to say, well, you know, there are maintenance costs in a house. You know, there's the problems that come with a renter, um, the pros and cons. They, they mapped out the pros and the cons in a really detailed way. And it's like, well, this isn't really related to our financial portfolio. And yet they were an incredible resource. And they have been, we, you know, we definitely have shopped around. We've had bad financial advisors, but we have financial advisors now that are really terrific. And they're sort of partners. And they, you know, they knew that this was our plan. We, we started talking about this 10 years ago. So they've been sort of cheering us along. 
But they can also answer so many questions. And so far, their advice, you know, they tell me what to do. And then I look it up and I research it. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's a good point. You know, sometimes you you research online and you think, oh, I know this now. I know everything there is to know because I read a bunch of blog posts on online. And then, you know, you talk to somebody who really knows the subject and you realize, oh, those people writing those blog posts were a bunch of idiots. They didn't know what they're talking about. There are all these things that, that they didn't consider. So that's another great resource. But yeah, accountant and financial advisor. Absolutely. Just to be clear, you're not talking about debtfreeguys.com, right? <laughs> <laughs> you are not just guys on the internet. Thanks. How does your bank support the LGBT community? Not at all? For Pride in June? Or 365 days a year? Capital One proudly supports the LGBT community throughout the year. Maybe it's time to support a bank that supports us. Go to debtfreeguys.com forward slash cafe for more info. So we've talked about some important things, right? We've talked about taxes. We've talked about being able to afford living abroad. Let's talk about probably another critical component is healthcare. Um, and I know I can't remember exactly which article of yours I read where I read this, but you you said American insurance pays absolutely nothing overseas. And that's exactly the experience that David and I had. Um, and unfortunately for us, our first long-term trip overseas, we didn't know that. So we were a little naive. <laughs> but ever since then, every time we travel overseas, we're like, oh, there's, there's extra work to try to make sure we have the appropriate coverage. How do you guys handle your coverage, especially since you're constantly bouncing from different country to country? This is the eternal question and the most difficult question. And it is such an infuriating. This goes back to my frustration with America in general. The way we do healthcare is just, it's insane. Especially you see how the rest of the world does it. And then you think, oh my God, it's even more insane than I thought. It's crazy. So, I, I mean, I am not an expert, even though, you know, I have a master's degree. I'm a pretty, I'm literally a writer. This is what I do is I think for a living. I do not feel like a stupid person. And yet I feel reduced to tears by the whole healthcare conundrum. conundrum. I just don't. But what we have done, I mean, there are so many pitfalls, exactly as you said. And you just don't know. For example, we had been buying travel insurance for two years before somebody said, one travel insurance said, you don't need to buy us before you leave the country. And I'm thinking, well, I, I don't ever buy travel insurance before I left the country because I'm never in the country. I buy it as I go. But that the statement implies that you need to buy it for most travel insurance. You need to buy it before you leave the country. Well, sure enough, we were never covered those first two years because, in fact, most travel insurance it assumes you are an American resident, not that you're traveling continuously, and you buy it before you leave, and you need to buy it before you leave, and if you don't, it's invalid. So in a, basically, there are two companies. There's, well, there's World Nomads, there's Safety Wing, there's uh, Cigna. There are different companies that insure the Nomad for both travel insurance and for international health insurance. Two separate things. Travel insurance is one thing specific, like if there's an emergency or if you lose your your suitcase or whatever. And then there is health insurance, which is a completely different animal. Will you actually be covered for something more than just an emergency? If you've got cancer, for example, if you've got some sort of chronic illness. And then there's expatriation, which is a separate piece of the puzzle, which is will they pay to fly you to a hospital, which can be extremely expensive. And once you're at the hospital, will they pay to fly you back to the United States? And, and when I say extremely expensive, it can be like half a million dollars expensive. So, you know, it can wipe out a, an estate. So you need to make sure you have all the pieces of this, these puzzles. Right now, we actually do keep an Obamacare policy back in the United States, and we have travel insurance. Basically, you know, it's constantly in flux. I'm constantly learning more. But if we, you know, we are traveling indefinitely, but if we got cancer, I would probably want to come back to the United States. And it is very difficult to, you know, if you were uninsured, the Obamacare exchanges have very particular qualifications to be able to even, I mean, Biden has loosened things considerably, but in order to reapply for insurance, just moving back to the United States is not necessarily a qualifying event. So you do not necessarily just segue seamlessly. You might have to wait for the new enrollment period. So we've hung on to that policy at considerable cost, I would add. And we've also kept a travel policy. But it is something I'm constantly investigating, and I do know more now than I did two years ago, but it is the big issue. The second part, though, the second thing I will say is, if you have a reasonable estate, a reasonable amount of money, you can pay most things out of pocket, not expatriation, because that can be really, really, really expensive. But most things, since healthcare costs one-tenth 
that it caught what it cost the United States everywhere else in the world except maybe places, maybe a few places, maybe Britain, maybe a few places in Western Europe. Even there, it's going to be half what it is in America. Most things you could just pay out of pocket. We have a lot of friends who just set money aside, and if emergency were to happen, they will just pay out of pocket. And uh, so that's another option if you have considerable assets. But it's insane. <laughs> well, just to, just to add to the difference between American healthcare and healthcare in most of the rest of the world, we have a Dutch friend, and we met her in Thailand. And the topic turned to, to healthcare, and they were just astounded by, first of all, how much American healthcare is and everything yeah. we had to go through. And we said, "Well, how are you covered here? You know, what do you do?" And she said, "Oh, I just filled out a form with the government <laughs> and for an extra forty dollars a month." I'm covered around the world because, you know, our healthcare isn't insane. So other countries are willing to give us, you know, reciprocal. So yeah, that's all I had to do. It's just $40 a month and I'm, I'm taking care of. And we were, we were just like flabbergasted. So some numbers. So when we were in Thailand, we had a friend who got dengue fever and he had to be evacuated off. We were on an island at the time and he needed to be evacuated through an ambulance, you know, on a ferry off the island. And he was in a hospital for a week. And he was on a hospital on the island for a week and then in Krabi for a week. And his bill was $2,500 for all of that. Um, we, had a, we had another friend who we didn't know him at the time, but he was also in Thailand and he was in a scooter accident and wound up in the hospital. It, was, it wasn't life-threatening, but he was pretty banged up, including his face. And he had to have you know some cosmetic surgery on his face. And he was in the hospital for quite a while recovered. And the whole thing, and the whole thing came to $10,000 US, which was very expensive, you know, for the rest of the world. But, you know, he was pretty seriously injured. I, in the United States, I can't even imagine. I bet it would have been 10 times. It would have been $100,000. And because he, because he, oh, it would have been, yeah. He would have been, and because he rented the scooter with a credit card, he was covered through his credit card, which is another <laughs> thing. You know, those, there are a lot of things you don't really think about. You can get a travel credit card and they have benefits. They have actual benefits and they're actually good benefits. And, you know, so you want to make, you know, if you're renting, that's something to keep in mind. Like if you are renting a scooter, use a credit card and that might be something you can access should the time come. We have accessed healthcare in different countries for the most part. I mean, big picture, I have been surprised by how great it is. And it, it should be said, again, going back to massive American privilege, in most of the places we've been, if it's a tourist area, there will be a hospital for Westerners that will be extremely comfortable and also extremely affordable by American standards. Um, so it'll be extremely quality healthcare. That that's a business model. But, you know, sometimes things aren't quite, they're not quite a state of the art. You know, when we were in Bulgaria, things were you know, we had a friend who went to the hospital. Granted, he dislocated his shoulder and he had to stay overnight in a hospital bed and the bill was $20. But that said, <laughs> it was sort of a, a scary hospital. You know, they didn't, things are a little dubious. The hospital in Bulgaria aside, I do think if you're going to consider moving abroad, you do need to make a mind shift and you do need to stop expecting and thinking American standards are the end all and be all because that big new shiny hospital with every piece of beeping equipment and, you know, just really well staffed. That's part of the reason things cost so much. I got really sick in, in Mexico city and had to go to a clinic and, mm. you know, it wasn't a particularly fancy clinic. You know, I walked in sat down in a little room and she had a computer and we, you know, she, she helped me out. I got, I think three different prescriptions for what I had, you know, had the time with the doctor and I think the whole thing came to $40. And just to see my doctor in the U.S., just to walk in the door, and I can only do this three times a year, is $25. You know, then after that, I have to start paying, you know, more on top of it. So I had a, an encounter with a bat earlier this year, I guess late last year, when we happened to be back in the United States in Denver. And oh my God. So I had to get the rabies vaccine, uh, which in the United States was $6,000. And I think I ended up paying $1,200. The insurance did cover some of it, thank God, but I still paid. At the same time, I had a friend here in Mexico who was bit by a dog and she had to get the rabies vaccine. And it was $400 and her insurance paid, you know, $350. So she paid $50. So the same shots, the same round of, you know, it's a total of seven shots. You know, it's very complicated. But here in Mexico, you know, she paid $100 or $50. And here in the United States, I paid $1,200. You know, so and if you don't have insurance in the United States, it would be ten thousand dollars to get the rabies vaccine. Yeah, here she paid four hundred dollars because she was a foreigner. If she were a Mexican resident, I don't think she would have paid a dime. Yeah, well, yeah. 
I did read that in your on your blog about you uh, having the bat incident, and I thought to myself, I'd lived in Denver for 20 years, and I never got attacked by a bat myself. I wasn't sure exactly what you did. <laughs> you know, well, we were just out walking, and something fluttered against my neck, and uh-huh. I'm like, I'm sure it didn't bite me. There's no puncture marks. It's I'm fine. I'm fine. And so I, I I'm sort of a researcher, and so I'm researching this with these uninformed people online. But I'm calling experts, and I call the bad expert, and I really wanted somebody to say, oh, you don't have anything to worry about. Put it out of your mind. You don't need to get the vaccine. But everybody kept saying just the opposite. And what they said, the takeaway was, that's really, really unusual bat behavior. Bats don't do that. Bats avoid people, and they're, you know, they've got radar. That's literally what they do. So when they bump into somebody, it is a sign that, in fact, it could be a rabid bat, a rabid creature. And, and they don't necessarily leave puncture wounds. Um, that's another thing here in, in Mexico. You know, we, we would have, we'd love, we have a beautiful balcony and a beautiful view and bat, bats, a big flock of bats come out every night and we would love to be able to open the doors, but of course then they will fly in our <laughs> room and you don't want bats to be flying around in your bedroom at night because again, they can bite you if there's a rabbit, rabid bats. And now we've just scared away half of the people listening to the podcast are going to Mexico. <laughs> well, he got bumped by the bat in Denver. Yeah. So, you know, it's, yeah, it's very, exactly. Going back to the insanity of, of the uh, American healthcare system with the whole bat story. So we're, our, our technical home base is Washington State. That's where we've got our, our health insurance. The health insurance company we're with has got offices in some states around the country, including Colorado, which is where we were at. Oh. But then we were set to be going up to Montana where we were going to spend a month. And because we were going to a different state where that insurance company had no facilities, we literally had to would have paid more out of pocket, like another two thousand dollars, I think, to, to get the last shot. We're in the same country for crying out loud, <laughs> right. and we change states, and all of a sudden, you know, oh, sorry, you're not within the healthcare network, so you're no longer going to be covered by it. Whereas you're not going to run into that problem in all of the your. European Union. And not to continue bashing the American healthcare system, in both Denver and in Seattle, where we where we have our home base, there is Kaiser Permanente. So I was dealing with Kaiser Permanente Denver and Kaiser Permanente Seattle, but there's no communication between the two. So it's two completely independent systems. Right. It makes no sense. I, I felt like Alice down the rabbit hole. Trying, I know, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And so like I'm getting hounded, you know, I, I don't know who to pay and it was very crazy. And and I I I feel sorry for everybody who still has to participate in the healthcare system. I'm so glad to be mostly out of it. So I would have to I have to ask then, uh, with what you are averaging in health insurance and health health expenses, are you I'm assuming you're still saving money and able to stretch your dollars further? Yes. Technically, last year we qualified for an Obamacare subsidy, so we didn't pay for the full premium. So uh, it was sizable, but it wasn't like estate destroying. We didn't pay the full. The full premium is something like sixteen thousand to cover the both of us, and we weren't. We were paying less than half that. But even with that, yes, even with that, we are. If I had to guess, I think this year, this year was an unusual year because we did spend some time in the United States because we spent so long here. But I think we probably came in at about. $55,000. And I, I think it would have been, had we had we still been in the United States in Seattle, I think our cost of living probably would have been more like 100000 So a little more than half, that's a guesstimate. But I still think even with all of this, that's sort of the beauty of this, that you can sort of do things like double insure just for the peace of mind because you've got all this money to work with, more money to work with. Uh, David's um, gears are turning. I can see him crunching numbers and thinking about how much money <laughs> we could save traveling the world. I will admit that's that's part of the reason why a lot of uh, it was one of the reasons why we did the podcast episode about how we could afford to live in Spain for three months. Because I know that a lot of people, when they saw us posting on social media that we were going to go live in Spain for three months, that I think they thought about it. Just what you said, Brent. This kind of perception of this is what vacation looks like. Yeah. They just mm-hmm. assume that, right, okay, we're going to go spend three months in a hotel room and that we're going to be going out to eat every single night. And that, but no, the reality was, is we rented a small place that cost us literally cost us about a thousand dollars a month for a four bedroom house. Right. And there you go. that is just, and we cooked at home and the way that you stretch your dollars when you travel is you live while you're traveling overseas these extended periods of time you live the same way you would live as if you lived at home 
right? Yep. You don't go out to eat every single night when you're at home, at least. Well, in some countries you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. But then when, you know, like you do have that opportunity then to say, okay, let's go have dinner tonight or, but we also went out for lunch today as well, right? Because yeah. again, you've, you've stretched your dollars a little further. Well, here's another thing that we've, we've learned as we traveled our first year, you know, we were planning on, we started off in Miami just to get out of the Seattle winter. And then we were going to be going to London and we were sort of focusing on the bigger, well-known, more expensive places, just because that's sort of what was in our mind. Yeah. But after that, during that first year, and then since then, what we have subsequently realized is there are all kinds of really interesting places that are kind of off the beaten path that nobody talks about where life is so much less expensive. So you you don't have to, when you think about moving abroad, you know, you don't even have to go to Spain and Portugal, which are relatively affordable compared to the United States. You, you can go to southern Italy, you can go to Bulgaria, and there are these really cool towns that you've never heard of. If you just open your mind, you're going to find there are a lot of places you can live that are going to be shockingly affordable. Eastern Europe is so beautiful. We had such stereotypes, you know, we're old enough to remember, you know, the Iron Curtain and the Soviet Union. And, and it's, so it's, it's either these negative stereotypes are shrouded in mystery. And of course, it's these charming ancient villages and these pristine forests because of the Soviet occupation were not developed for years and years and years. And these cuisines, you know, Georgian food was so good, you know, and you just, I've never tasted anything like it. Mm. And, you know, and you're, you're living for one sixth the cost. Uh, the other thing I will say is when you do this longer than just, you guys say you did it for three months, then you learn, especially, you know, as you tap into the community, you learn sort of tricks and, you know, Airbnb is one thing. That's a great resource. But then you connect with somebody locally and then you don't have to pay the Airbnb commission. And then you, because you are perceived as more local, they're going to charge you less anyway. You know, people invite you to stay places. They're just there are other things that drive the price even lower than when you're sort of doing it temporarily, when you do it long term. And then people give you you're, you're tapped into a community. People say, oh, you need to go here because this is great. The food is great. You know, and if you're worried about money, this is an incredibly cheap place to be or go to this particular place. This is a great value. And so what started out as ridiculously cheap gets cheaper still. Well, you, you brought up a very interesting comment or thought there. The idea of the shrouded in mystery, the stereotypes that are shrouded in mystery scare people, right? How oh, yeah. many of us have heard over the last 10, 20, 30 years, oh, I didn't know gay people were like this. You guys are actually yeah. pretty nice. Yeah. <laughs> because we have been shrouded in mystery and have had this stereotype wrapped around us for such a long time. We then transfer that same thinking to all these different places in the world or these customs in the world or the food in the world in, in these different countries. It's partly what Michael said that you have to make a mental leap. You know, certain things are going to be different and you need to accept that. But once you, first of all, it's surprisingly easy to do. And once you do, it expands your mind and seeing the world from a different point of view and you see sort of a beauty and you appreciate things like I appreciate, ironically, being, you know, sort of a gay person and having friends that come from very traditional families and are sort of torn and tortured in some ways, but in the other ways, they sort of see the beauty in this. You know, every traditional family has sort of the, you know, the crazy aunt that tells the liberal aunt that, that tells you to do whatever you want, you know, be yourself and is pro-gay. And yet there might be a, another, you know, an uncle that's unconventional that'll slip you money and, and that you understand that extended traditional families, they're there. That was a stereotype too, you know, that, it's not, it's more complicated, like everything in life, it's more complicated than the stereotype and that there is a beauty in a lot of these, you know, this family grandma living there and she can talk about the old world and, and that, the, you know, progress is important and change is part of life. And we are, you know, the world, what is, what is angels in America? The world only spins forward. And I believe that. But at the same time, it is important to remember tradition and where we came from and, you know, not to demonize and, and meet people where they are. And that's been part of the process for our travels. And I, I am not a natural risk taker. I'm not a particularly adventurous person, but 
it has not been stressful for me. And if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. <laughs> nice. So another thing in life that's complicated is uh, our visas. <laughs> what can you share with our, our listeners about the, the, the visa application process? Understanding, of course, that it's obviously different from, from country to country or from zone to zone. I'll start by talking about if, if you're American or Canadian or from most Western countries, you have, and we didn't know this till we started traveling, you know, extensively like this, you have such huge visa privilege. Um, you know, there are ranking systems of, of which countries have the easiest visas access to it. And I think Japan is number one. You know, basically any Japanese person, you don't even have to show up with a visa ahead of time. You show up at the airport and there's something very commonly called visa on arrival. And you show up and they look at your passport and see you're American because Americans are accepted almost everywhere, at least pre-COVID. It was a time this past year where Americans weren't going anywhere. But you go in and it's like, okay, you're here for three months. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to do anything. Come on in. So you need to do your research because that's not true of everywhere. But for the most part, you can go and stay for three months. Some countries like Georgia, you can stay for three months. Others are a little more complicated. Thailand, you needed to, you could get a visa on arrival for 30 days, mm -hmm. but then if you wanted an extension, you would have to leave the country for a day, get stamped and come back in. <laughs> or before you got to Thailand, you could go to a Thai consulate and get a visa that would be good for 90 days. 60 days, then it can be extended to 90. Yes, yeah, sorry, it could be extended for 90. So it can be somewhat complicated depending <laughs> on, on where you're going and sort of the less uh, traditionally developed a country is, maybe the little more complicated it will be. And it's also a reciprocal element. For instance, <laughs> um, Bolivia, Bolivians have a very hard time getting into the United States. And consequently, for Americans to get into Bolivia, I think you have to pay, uh, it's like three or $400 Good to for get Bolivia. it. Most countries, you don't pay <laughs> anything for your visa on arrival. Some countries, you know, you'll have to pay, you know, a 10, 15, $20 fee, or you might pay a fee when you leave. It's really not that hard. You just do your research ahead of time. Like I said, these Facebook groups, you pop in and say, these are the countries I'm planning on going to. What is my visa situation going to be? And then you just you know, take care of it ahead, ahead of time. The other thing we should talk about, language, because that was the other thing that sort of scared me that, oh my God, I don't speak these foreign languages. You know, and We'll be so overwhelmed. And the fact is, most people, many people under 30, speak English now all over the world. There's translation, you know, there's Google Translate. It's not nearly as difficult. And especially like in an airport, if you have questions, there will always be somebody. Again, it's massive American privilege. The world caters to English speaking Americans, but it's just not as frightening as you'd think. And if you screw up, this is, we've talked about this with nomads. That's like, there should be a word for the moment when you get on a bus for the first time. The, the, the feeling of discomfort you feel where it's like, do I pay when I get on the bus? Do I pay when I get off the bus? How much do they take exact change? Do I need a card? There's this moment of discomfort that's, there's no word for it, but it's such a specific feeling. I've felt it so many times. But then you take a breath and you see what somebody else does. And if it isn't clear, you ask the bus driver who will almost always speak English and, or you ask somebody in the bus and they will help you because outside of tourist areas, Everybody in the world is very friendly and they're flattered that you've come to their community and they're excited to meet you for the most part. That's been my experience. And you ask somebody for help. And that moment of embarrassment that I was so terrified, oh my God, I'm going to be embarrassed. Ah, therefore, I will not ever travel the world. It's ridiculous because it's like, I mean, looking back, because that, you know, they have like foreign bathrooms. I was so afraid of foreign bathrooms. It's like, there's nothing to be afraid of. It's like when you're there, it just makes sense. And you ask people for help and they help you. And the world exists to accommodate rich Americans anyway. And so it's like all these things I was so afraid of. I mean, you know, that you confront them and they just vaporize. They just disappear. It's so much easier than I thought. Doesn't it make you wonder sometimes what foreigners feel like coming to the United States? Oh, my God. Like, Why doesn't anybody speak my language? <laughs> I am Why so can't anybody help immigrants? Me? It's so true. There's a letter from an Armenian immigrant back to our, his Armenian family that we were reading. This fellow showed it to us. And it was so such an interesting perspective on how, it, how hard it is, what the struggle. Oh, my God, immigrants are amazing. What they are able to do, because it's not the same thing. What we're doing is not the same thing. It's so much easier. Well, and there's, there's not just the language issue. There's the whole, whole financial thing. Oh, yes. We, we got to know a number of of Georgians and even a, a young Armenian person. And they were talking about wanting to come to the United States. And 
The wonderful advantage of prices being so much more affordable yeah. in those countries is great going our direction. But if you're a Georgian and you're making a Georgian salary and you want to move to the United States, it is, you know, the, the hill you have to climb, the mountain you have to climb is so much bigger because it's impossible. Yeah, it's almost impossible to do it, um, you know, to, to, to make that. And then you throw in the, the visa issue that we we're talking about before. It's like you've got all these these hurdles. You know, I had an Egyptian friend who was explaining to me, you know, well, why don't we just meet in this country? And it's like, um, I'm Egyptian. I can't go to Europe. I need, the only visa I can get is a medical visa or a student visa. I can't get a tourist visa because I'm Egyptian, you know. Or it's, and it's, it's like there are all these things I didn't consider. And then once you, even before we left the United States, they were all sort of abstractions in my mind. It's like, oh, well, that's just the way the world is. And then you meet these people and they become your friends and you start to see the world from their point of view and you realize how unbelievably fucked up it is, you know, <laughs> how crazy it is that one group of people get so many advantages in life and then complain that they have it hard. America first. Oh, my God. It just blows my mind. It just makes me outraged that. It's just such an insult to the entire rest of the world that has it so much more difficult. Well, sometimes you don't even understand your privilege until it's put right in front of your face. We were right. hired a driver who took us around Armenia with, with two other digital nomad friends. And at one point, we were turning, we, the conversation turned to, there's something in Europe called the Schengen Zone, which is a block of European countries that have gotten together and done away with the border controls. For Americans, you can only stay inside that zone, which I think is 20-something different countries for 90 days. And that can be really frustrating. And you can't just leave and reset. You have to be out 90 days in a 180-day period. Right. So, you know, we're complaining about how frustrating, how difficult it is. And then later, I happened to be talking with the driver, and I had my passport out for some reason. And he said, he said, can I hold that for a moment? And I'm like, you want to hold my passport? Okay. And I handed him my passport. And he's looking at it, and he's going... You know, it's so amazing that you you get to go all of these places because I can't do that with with my passport. And I, I said to our Brent and the others later, I said, I can't believe we were sitting in that car complaining yeah. that we can only stay in Europe for, you know, 90 days at a time while this poor guy is like, you know, you are the luckiest people in the world. And that was a really great moment of, of being put right in front of that privilege and, and making sure we don't forget it again. Going back to the question that we started this, you know, that some gay people want a gay community, which I respect and appreciate. But honestly, at this point in my life, I think it's so much more interesting to be in another culture that maybe I didn't quite understand and learning to appreciate. Because they're, I mean, they, I think, you know, based on my personal values, they are superior to American culture, that their priorities are less out of whack, even though there are things, you know, I appreciate America's view on gays and, and civil rights and, and social justice and all of that. And I love that we're leading the world, but we're also leading the world in all these chronically unhealthy ways about materialism and consumerism and, and uh, guns and, and just the consumption of resources and all, you know, and it's like, there are so many beautiful cultures in the world that I think are more suited with my personal values. And sometimes it's a question of picking and choosing. It's like, okay, I love this culture, but they are anti-gay or, you know, their, their view of women is a retrograde, but I love this other thing. But the big picture is it's just life is so much more interesting when you meet people on a human level and, you know, it forces you to see yourself from a different point of view. And, and I mean, that is exciting to me. And I feel embarrassed that it took me so long. You know, like I said, I'm in my 50s. I didn't start doing this until so late in life. And I, I feel like that was wasted time. Absolutely. So I get, that's a great segue to my next question. How long do you think you'll be doing this? Do you think you'll ever settle down in, in one place long term, even permanently? Well, we're in our 50s. And so at some point, you know, we will have to settle down and, and you know, choose someplace to, to live. We frequently talk about, you know, we check in with each other about how we're feeling. And right now, I guess I won't speak for Brent. Right now, it's hard for me to picture when that moment will come. Uh, we've been here for seven months, and I have been absolutely crawling the wall for the past month, um, ready to get going. And before that, I was already I was already ready to go. We normally stay in a place from, from one to three months. And by the end of the three months, we're ready to go. And the longer we've traveled, the more places we've discovered that we really want to go to and we want to live and want to explore. So for me, as long as I'm healthy, it's hard to imagine settling down anywhere at this point. That being said, I'm keeping my eyes open as we travel around and looking for that place that, that speaks to me in a way that says, you know, when I'm, when I'm ready to stop moving as frequently, this might be the place. This has become our new normal. And what Michael just said that we get to know a place 
to get to know, it's very hard always saying goodbye. You know, we're all, you're always saying hello, but you're also always saying goodbye. And that's, that can be hard. You know, you get, you meet people. One of the joys has been with nomad friends, you meet again. Oh, well, let's meet in Cairo. Let's meet in, you know, let's meet here. And then, and then you do. That said, it's now our new normal that it's like, okay, we've been here three months. We've done and seen all there is to see. It's going to be really sad to say goodbye to our new friends. But on the other hand, I'm really excited to go to some new place. So when we don't do that this past year, when we haven't been able to do that, it's felt, it's felt very weird. So this, I mean, it's kind of eerie how we're on the same page that I think we'll be doing this forever until health issues will force us to stop, which will hopefully be, what's the Woody Allen joke? You know, I'm, I'm 55 now, so a third of my life is over. Basically, you know, we want to keep doing this. I'll do this another hundred years if I can. And, uh, you know, it's been a revelation. Nice. Wonderful. I love that you're, you're doing this because there is a perception in the community that there are certain things that are just beyond our reach as a community. And we're, we're so excited to see more people in the queer community who are pushing the boundaries of what it is that we can do. More people looking towards financial independence, retiring early, which used to be kind of this very homogenistic, straight, white, almost techie bro kind of thing to do, right? And now there's so many more LGBT people starting to do that. The digital nomad thing is, is really starting to take off in the community. And it's nice to see that happening because it just helps remind us that we are on this path to, to equality, especially if we choose to go out there and try to capture it ourselves. Well, I think, you know, one of the, I've always said, one of the great things about being gay is that we can sort of act as a intermediary between being a gay man. Being, you can act as an intermediary between men and women. You know, I can talk to my, my straight male friends and my straight female friends and I can sort of translate and we can sort of be a bridge between the gap. And, and you know, maybe that's a cliche and, and of course it is. But it is about getting, I mean, the more we spread, the further out we spread, I think the better, I mean, it's not just a question of being evangelical and explaining, you know, be pro-gay. This is sort of what I expected. I sort of thought as a Westerner, we would breeze into these places and we would say, oh, you need to be out and open and proud and be gay. But of course, what has happened is I'm in these more traditional countries and it's like, oh, this is more complicated than I thought. I see your point of view. So they're changing me too, you know? So you're sort of experiencing them on a human level. And it's like, oh, it's so much different than what I thought. I thought I was going to come and lecture you. And in fact, you are sort of teaching me a different way and a way, things that I should respect that I didn't respect before. And I think that's what that's what real equality is all about, you know, that, that we, we, everybody's able to be their authentic self, whatever their authentic self is. And I would add, as, as a gay couple, rather than going into Tbilisi, Georgia and meeting gay people and saying, well, this is how you should be, you know, this is, this is the way you should be doing it. This is how we do it in America. We just live our life as we do. You know, we're, we're openly gay. We're, you know, renting our apartment together. We don't, you know, get separate beds or anything like that. And we just let them see us and how we live and what we talk about. So instead of, of beating them over the head, we just are ourselves. And if they see something in that that they value, then maybe they're going to take that away with them. And maybe that'll plant a seed that'll you know lead to a change later. I think that's a much more effective way to do change than telling people they're living wrong. It has been interesting, you know, the nomad community, we're sort of, we skew older. Most of our friends are in their 20s, 30s, 40s. I mean, that's another thing. It feels like the community is very non-judgmental. You know, it's like everybody sort of accepted that we've not, never felt, you know, maybe sometimes in the gay community I have been, although there's the whole daddy thing, that's a separate issue. <laughs> but it feels like, it feels like, uh, you know, we've sort of been accepted as we are. And it doesn't really matter how you dress or how fit you are or if you listen to a certain type of music. I mean, none of that matters. People sort of engage in a more authentic level. And I think that's awesome. I think we could all stand to engage on a more authentic level. And I think, you know, the gay male community could stand to engage on a more authentic level. Let's see each other as individuals. And, here, you, here. Know, here, you know, here, 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 here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I think what you guys are doing is, is wonderful. It's, it's inspiring. Um, I know David and I have been watching you for, for quite some time and we're not nomads ourselves, but I can definitely see ourselves morphing into more of a nomadic lifestyle. And we often tell our listeners, you know, if you want to succeed in an area, find those who are succeeding in those areas and learn from them. So with that, where all can our listeners connect and, and, and follow your journey? 
we have a website called Brent and Michael are going places, uh, com, And we also have recently started uh, a new travel newsletter. So if you go to Substack and look for Brent and Michael are going places, we do weekly updates uh, about wherever we're traveling to, which is nice because we're just getting started again. And then we also do longer think pieces um, about some of these very topics that we've discussed. You can find us on on Facebook at Brent and Michael are going places on Twitter at Brent and Michael are going places. And I'm very prolific on Instagram. Brent and Michael are going places there as well. Nice. Anything I forgot, Brent? Yeah, we're also, you know, relatively open book. If people have questions, they oh, can absolutely. contact us directly, drop us an email, or contact us uh, on any social media platform. Yeah, I chat with people on Instagram all the time. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Nice. I love it. Well, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate uh, you coming on and sharing your journey with uh, us and our listeners. It's been wonderful. It's great what you guys are doing, too. It's all about, you know, money is freedom, and uh, being debt-free is the way we get to complete freedom. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Capital One's checking and savings accounts have no fees and no minimums. And with one of the best saving rates in America, you can rest easy watching your money grow with no fees to bring you down. You can open an account in about five minutes, which means you are only about five minutes away from getting your savings to grow with one of the nation's best rates. Queer Money is being brought to you in part by the five building blocks of a happy gay life. Join the growing community of happy, healthy, and wealthy gay men who love their lives inside and out. Get your free copy of The Five Building Blocks of a Happy Gay Life at DebtFreeGuys.com forward slash happy. Thank you, Mike and Brent, for sharing your unique experiences and knowledge with nomading all over the world as a same-sex couple and members of the queer community. You're truly offering a new way for LGBTQ people to live and retire. Safe travels. To you, our listeners, here's your criminal takeaway from this episode. If you're truly interested in becoming an expat or nomad, as Mike and Brent shared, joining dedicated Facebook groups to connect with people and get your questions answered is your first best step. The FIRE, Nomad, and Travel groups Mike and Brent mentioned and that David and I are part of have been super welcoming to us, and we know they will be to you. Thank you, and have a great week. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking queer money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.